His grasp and his understanding we have seen of the gospel is seen clearly in the opening words of his letter to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And his desire for those to whom he writes speaks of the heart of that same gospel rooted in mercy and peace and love being multiplied to God's people. As we've learned in our study, his original intent in writing this brief letter was to remind his readers and to rejoice with them in the salvation that all true believers share, including all of us who believe here this morning. It is something to rejoice in, something every day in which we take great delight. But he was compelled and found it necessary, he says, upon hearing that some false teachers had crept into that believing community to write a letter with a very different tone than he had initially intended. There is an urgency in this letter, a soberness as well, uh, about this letter that captures the attention of its readers. For these false teachers who disguise themselves as angels of light have slipped in among the people and began to distort and pervert the grace of God, turning that grace into a license to to commit all sorts of vile acts and to pursue all kinds of illicit pleasures ultimately rejecting the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is king and head of his church. Obedience to Christ was stripped of all its meaning as they lived for themselves and they taught others to do the same. And so, in the form of cautionary tales taken from the Old Testament, Jude reminds them that those who have spurned the grace of God and twisted the blessings of God into ungodly actions will serve always as a warning to his readers and to us of what happens when Almighty God gives them over to eternal judgment and punishment of eternal fire. God's warnings unheeded lead always to God's judgments unleashed upon the wicked. Let the reader and the hearer beware. But Jude is far from done. What must happen now for the sake of the purity and peace of the church is that these false teachers must be unmasked. They must be revealed. It's very much like uh, something I saw recently, an advertisement, I guess because we're approaching Super Bowl. They're advertising the start of these new series, and this one is not new, I don't think. But you know the Masked Singer. I've never watched it. It's a show out there, I guess, whose premise, it appears, is for contestants to guess the identity of particular celebrity singers who are disguised in what appeared to be in the commercials I saw, a very elaborate costume, almost impossible, and is impossible to tell who they really are. Now the stakes are, of course, much higher for Jude than for some modern-day celebrity game show. Jude is dealing with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and these false teachers are perverting that gospel perverting the grace of God, and they must be unmasked and revealed for who they really are. And so beginning in verse 8 and going through really part of verse 19, he does just that. They may be able to creep into the church unnoticed, but Jude will not allow them to remain that way. He describes who they are by their actions, by their character, And you can see how he writes about them. It's very interesting. If you look at beginning in verse 8, how many times, and I'll just go through them, these people, verse 8, verse 10, these people, verse 11, they walked, verse 12, these people are hidden wreaths, verse 14, 
these people that Enoch predicted. Verse 16, these people are grumblers. They are loudmouth boasters. And verse 19, it is these, these people who cause divisions. There are no names given. We don't find one name listed in the book of Jude. They're just these people. But their character, their actions, all that they do are unmasked and revealed for all to see so that the church of Jesus Christ would heed the warnings that Jude intends to give to them. There are no names given, but they are shown to be who they really are, men pretending to be wise, but who in the end will be destroyed by their ignorance. And so let's listen to these, the first few verses. I ask you to stand, verses 8 through 10 this morning. And we're going slowly because these are very important sections that I want to take our time to go through. Verses 8 through 10, listen what Jude has to say about these people. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass does wither and the flowers do fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we do ask your blessing now upon this, your word, by your spirit, blessed to our hearing, our hearts, our minds, our very lives, that we might heed its warnings, receive its comforts, pay attention to all that is said. For our good, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Friend or foe, right? That's the great question. You see it in movies. You see it in stories. You see it as people approach each other on the battlefield. Friend or foe, are you with us or are you against us? And that is the great question in the midst of great battles. In the midst of those battles, it is critical to know who the enemy is so that all tactical efforts and energies can be focused in their direction. Many have heard the term, of course, the very sad term, friendly fire. Though it be friendly, it's still fire and it still kills. It's an odd sort of way of thinking, but we understand what it means. We separate that out from the fire and the attacks of the real enemy. Jude here is taking great care to identify the enemy that has now crept in among these Christians, and he wants to unveil them. He wants to unmask them. He wants these people in the church to see who they really are. This is not a place for politeness. This is not a place, even as I so often talk with several of you, the judgment of charity for these men. They are clearly wicked, and there is no charity for which and by which we can judge them. They are who they are. And Jude says we must know them for who they are. And so he describes them in these first few verses. And as I've said, it goes all the way down even to verse 19. Generally, verse 17 begins a transition. But even up until verse 19, he's still talking about them. 
The transition that occurs in verse 17 is how are we to act in the midst of this? But he still mentions them, and that's why we include verse 19, those who cause divisions, etc. But he wants to begin describing them, and he does so with one sort of phrase or word, and it's found right in the beginning of verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. They are dreamers. Now, by that, Jude does not mean that they're sort of living in a dream world. You know that phrase. You walk around with someone who's just always got their head in the sky, always looking kind of dazed. And you say, that person's living in a dream world. They're not in reality. Well, that's a sense of of what Jude means here. But he really means this idea of dreamers in the Old Testament sense of those who believe that God is revealing something to them, that God is speaking directly to them. And so that is what elevates them in their own minds to be the authorities and the ones who kind of creep in and take over in this church. You see in verse 8, as he begins to describe that, he says, yet in like manner, this is really a reference back to what he's just said. It is these, these people These people who are walking in the path he's just described, who are heading to God's judgment. They're like the unbelieving Israelites in the desert. They're like the angels who did not keep their first estate. They're like the Sodomites who threw off all restraint and lived in gross sin. Let not the wicked think that he can avoid the judgment of God. As God has done before, so God will do again. But these men are dreamers in this sense, like those false prophets of old who believed that they had received this word from the Lord and were misleading the people. This is how they elevate themselves among the people. This is how they appear to be wise in their own eyes, and yet they remain ignorant. Jeremiah 23, you may remember, Jeremiah speaks often of these kinds of men who lived in his day. Thus the Lord says in chapter 23 of Jeremiah, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. There is no judgment, no worries. Everything will be fine. The Lord says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way And from the evil of their deeds. You see the connection. These men were doing just the exact opposite. They were inviting God's people away from holiness and righteousness. And into licentious living. Living for their own pleasures. They say their dreams are evidence that God is speaking through them. As opposed than through others. How clever it is. As the writers of the New Testament warn us. How clever it is that Satan uses such deceit to draw people of God away from the truth of his final and authoritative word of Christ. And there have been those today, even in our day, who have sought to lead the people of God astray, who claim to receive dreams and visions from God 
that he speaks uniquely and only to them and that the people are to listen and to follow them. Jude says that there are false prophets under the same condemnation as those who came before them. Now, that's the description. He paints them as dreamers in this way, those who are wise in their own eyes. What is it that these dreamers do, though? Well, Jude loves threes, sets of threes. I've told you that last week, and he does it here as well. He says they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. We'll look at each of those in their order, because this is how they infiltrate. This is how they come against God's people. They, first of all, defile the flesh. Now, there's no doubt of what Jude means by this. He means what he said about the Sodomites in the previous section. He means what they say about perverting the gospel of grace, living a life of license to do whatever you please, whatever feels good, the mantra of our day in which we live. 2 Peter 2.10 says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. That's what he's talking about here. They defile the flesh in the lust of defiling passion. As Paul notes in 1 Corinthians, sexual sins and uniquely sexual sins are committed against one's own body and flesh. And that body, which Paul argues is the temple of the Holy Spirit, is defiled by it and they abuse the flesh. Reference to the sins of the Sodomites, again, is certainly in view, but all kinds of sexual sin would be in view as well. The idea, again, is license to do whatever feels good in the moment, license to live out your wildest fantasies and pleasures. Anything goes, is what he's writing about. This is one of their characteristics and their traits in their dreaming and believing that God is speaking to them. How important it is, especially in our own day, but every time to warn against such sins. We are living, as I've said, in a time when truly anything goes. And people discover that when we do that, great and horrific acts take place. I won't go into the details of the recent story that just broke on the news As the world celebrates what the Bible calls abomination, there then follows after it greater abuses of wickedness that come to light. That is just the nature of sin, especially these kinds of sexual sins that defile the body and begin to rule and overrule reason in our lives so that great and horrific crimes and abuse abuses flow out of it. These dreamers, these false teachers, these people, Jude says, are those who defile the flesh. Secondly, they reject authority. Peter adds to the verse I just read that they also despise authority. They are presumptuous and self-willed. That's the essence of their character. That's who they really are. I think in the context here, we can argue that the authority that God is speaking of through Jude is the authority that he has established for his people. 
Namely, as we've just come from the election of officers, those whom God has called to rule in the church. That would be a great example of what Jude has in mind here. They despise any such authorities. They don't listen, as the writer of Hebrews says, to obey your leaders who serve you. But instead, they despise all of that authority. I think that's why you'll see when we get to these verses later of Korah and Dathan and their rebellion. That's a picture of the despising of the authority of Moses as they rebelled against Moses and his leadership there in the church. We think of the rule of authority of elders in the local church, that these are those who would rule or throw off that authority, either actively or passively, that Christ has established and given for the good of the church. There are those who have no rule over them. No one will rule over these people. And we can surely extend that, I believe, because I think it would be consistent that they would pay no attention to the kinds of authority God has established in other realms either. Authority established in the home as the father is called to be the head of the home and to lead his family. The authority is established by God in the civil realm. Titus 3 says, remind them, remind them all to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's the mind and life of Christ in us. Not these people. They have no respect for authority, for those who are placed in positions of governing rule. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there is no authority except that which is from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God himself. Well, we're beginning to see as we read those verses, aren't we, that this desire to not listen to authority, this desire to reject authority, is really ultimately what? It's the rejection of God and of his authority ultimately, which then harkens back to verse 4, doesn't it? Because he described them that way, didn't he? These are men who not only pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, but what do they do? They deny our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And isn't that, when you think of any authority, always what's at stake anyway? Isn't that what we teach our children when we ask them to obey us? We don't say, obey me because I say so, although some of us had said that. We say, obey me because in your obedience to me, you are demonstrating your obedience to God because he has placed me over you as an authority to teach you what it means to submit because the whole of your life, son or daughter, is to be given in submission to God and to his authority. And this is but one expression of that. Well, these people have no sense of that at all. And we know people like that. We've met people like that who won't bow the knee to anyone. They won't acknowledge that anyone has any right or authority over them. They will do it, as Frank Sinatra so beautifully sang, my way and no one else's. That's the mantra of our age, and that's the description that Jude wants us to understand about these dreamers They reject all authority. They would as readily throw off the authority of God himself if they could bring him down and seat him before them than they would every other human authority because that's what they're doing. 
They're rejecting everything he has placed in this world as an authority, a legitimate authority over them. But that's not all they do. They do one more thing. And this is perhaps where Jude gets very interesting. And all of us read this and we say, what in the world is he talking about? They speak evil of dignitaries. The word literally is glories. It has been translated by the ESV, as you see, the glorious ones. Peter, I think, helps us here in 2 Peter. Remember, 2 Peter and Jude, lots of overlap. When you might struggle reading through Jude, you might go to First or 2 Peter and say, how does Peter approach this same subject? This is how Peter writes, bold and willful. Some of this will sound familiar. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Jude literally, or Peter literally writes, they blaspheme or blaspheming glories or the glorious ones. There's no doubt in Peter that what he's talking about are angels. So the rebellion of these kinds of people extends to the invisible realm as well. They don't care, and later in verse 10, they don't even understand the reality of the invisible world where rulers and principalities and powers exist. And the argument for Jude clearly is from the greater to the lesser. If angels, who are far greater than we are, do not bring a reviling accusation against these kinds of invisible powers then how is it that we who are lower can possibly do such things? Not only human authorities, but angelic powers and beings as well. Specifically, how is it that these false teachers, who are lower again than angels, can do such things? Well, the answer comes in verse 10. The answer is, they simply don't understand, because they're like animals, They live by instinct, not by reason or understanding. This can happen when people today, even within the church, deny the reality of spiritual forces or treat them as if they're fairy tales. The devil, after all, we say, is just a man who walks around with horns and is red and carries a pitchfork. He fills the cartoons of several of our favorite cartoon strips as someone who is tameable and easily resisted. Well, Ephesians 6 tells us the truth, doesn't it? He tells us, and this is a warning. Actually, it's an encouragement because of who these angelic beings are. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Why? Because you and I can't go up against angelic beings and powers. We must be shod with the armor of God. It is God who protects us. And so Paul goes on, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You see what Jude is saying about these people. They don't understand that. They don't care to understand it. They just believe because they receive revelations from God 
that they have the ability and power within themselves to do whatever they want, and they will respect or bow to no authority, to no authority, whether of this world or of that invisible world. That's what they do. But Jude then very helpfully gives us an illustration, and that's what this next verse is, isn't it? Verse 9, really through verse 10, which is the summary, is verse 9 is an illustration. And this is the place that when you read through Jude, most people have the most trouble. Because you scratch your head, you remember Deuteronomy 34, and you say, the Bible never talks about Michael the archangel wrestling with Satan, contending with Satan for the body of Moses. Good point. But Jude clearly is taking this from a pseudepigrapha book, which is a a book written by those who are pretending to be important characters in the New Testament, pretending to write in their name stories that have never been received by the church. It's like the Apocrypha, but but it's a, a pseudonym, right? They use the name, they might use the name of Timothy. So Timothy, they say, wrote these letters or books Or in this case, the assumption of Moses is the book he's referring to, which is a pseudepigraphal book. It's a book written by someone who's pretending to be somebody else, who wants to cash in on the famous Bible now that is sort of taking over the world, wants to put their writing out with the scriptures themselves who have been received and testified by the church as being the word of God. They want some part of that, and so they write these books. And in the assumption of Moses, this is where this story clearly is. It's found in there. The archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, but he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You can see why it's an illustration and a very helpful one in that. Now, don't be troubled, please, brothers and sisters. Don't be troubled that Jude, in contending against false teachers, would bring in an illustration from something that is clearly not God's word and may very well be a story that is just known, well-known, but made up. Is there a legitimate use for that? Well, consider some of the places. Numbers 21 refers to the book of wars and references as a place where we learn something about what the writer of Numbers, Moses, is saying about the land of the Amorites and the uh, people of Moab. He quotes from the book of wars. Famously, in Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul, as he makes his defense before all the wisdom of Athens there on Mars Hill quotes as he says in verse 28 yet he is actually not far that is God from each one of us in him we live live and move and have our being even as some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring he quotes from pagan poets to relate to the people to whom he's speaking well-known phrases that they could grasp immediately and use it as an illustration for them. Also, famously, in Acts chapter 20, Paul's great speech to the Ephesian elders as he prepares to leave them, he writes this, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, 
and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. You can search your copy of all four Gospels. You will never find those words. Do I believe he said them? Of course he said them. Of course he said them. They're just not recorded for us except here in Acts chapter 20. And so when we come to the use of extra biblical sources like the assumption of Moses, and he'll quote something else later as well, Judah's doing it to illustrate the point. Did it really happen? Perhaps it did. Perhaps it did. Perhaps it is just an illustration. We don't know that for sure, but the illustration serves its purpose. Michael, the archangel, he is one of the highest of the angels. And in God's providence, if you like the news like I do, I still follow it, so don't worry, but I try to keep my balance. Didn't you hear the story this week out of Mexico? Wasn't that just humorous? That a man, drunk, sadly, which is usually how these things happen, decides he's going to go to a church in Mexico to steal a statue of St. Michael the Archangel. As he went in and stumbled around and attempted to steal it, he fell, tripped over himself and the statue. And when he fell, the statue, the sword that Michael was holding, cut his neck If the people who were nearby hadn't seen him doing all of this and rescued him, he would have died simply by the loss of blood. The police came, of course, promptly arrested him, took interviews. The owner of the store that was across the street from Christ the King Parish, where this statue was, believed, and he's mixing religions here, that karma struck down the would-be thief. Another interviewed said that happened to him for doing bad things. St. Michael is for protection to combat evil. I think that's why that happened to him. A neighbor added that St. Michael the Archangel is the great protector. Now, in that sense, they know their Bible pretty well because he is pictured in the Bible as the great protector. In Daniel 10, Daniel 12, Michael the archangel is referred to as the great prince who has charge of the people of Israel. He is the one who watches over Israel in the Old Testament, right? This powerful angel got into a dispute about the body of Moses, Jude says. It's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 24, but no mention of that particular story. Now, why again would someone write this? except only wanting to illustrate the point that these people respect no authority. But Michael did. I think the story previously from Mexico says, don't mess with Michael the archangel. He'll get you one way or another. But the point here is that Michael the archangel didn't mess with Satan. And that's important for us to see. Michael was not afraid of Satan. He wasn't. But he has simply called for and allowed the Lord to rebuke him. That is the posture of faith, the posture of trust, the posture of submitting unto God who rules over all things. In Zechariah 3, verse 2, then he showed me Joshua, Zechariah writes, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. 
the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you? Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? We have a faithful friend, a defender in the Lord himself. We need not take up our own defense against Satan as the accuser of anyone or of anyone else who may speak evil against us. We see this very trait of submitting to God as the ruler of all things. In Peter's first letter, he committed no sin, speaking of Jesus. Neither was any deceit found in his mouth. But when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was willing, though he being God could have spoken a word and all the armies of heaven would have been there at his disposal, but he did not threaten. Jesus, in obedience as the Messiah, our mediator, living, if you will, our life in this life by his righteousness, did not threaten, though he could have. There was no need, for he is our great high priest For us to defend ourselves, for he is our great high priest come in the flesh, and he entrusted himself to his father and to his father's judgment. And we are to do the same. We are to do the same. Peter again says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered or reviled, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Don't revile in return. Don't take up your own defense when God is your great defender. And so he brings all of this to a conclusion, sort of a summary, sort of a final unveiling, unmasking of these people in verse 10. He tells us what's behind it all. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively these are those who know and have no boundaries there's no line that they will not cross no avenue or path of wickedness that they will not walk in no authority that they will not overthrow and speak evil against, but they do it all in ignorance. They're not wise. They don't receive dreams and prophecies from God. They're mere animals living by instinct and not by reason. And that's why they need to be unmasked and shown for who they are. One writer summarizes it this way really helpfully, their counterfeit authority is rooted in their brute-like ignorance. It's rooted in ignorance. Just as animals live by instinct and appetite rather than by reasoned response to authority, the same is true for these people. Their understanding is not shaped by the true and safe authority of God's word, but by the warped, warped instincts of their own fallen human nature. It's our fallen nature on steroids is what it is. It's sin lived out to the fullest without limits. And it's ignorance at its very root. Jude has to uncover this. He has to show these people for who they are. He's not trying to win friends and influence people. He's not trying to show a judgment of charity 
The stakes are too high. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that's being perverted by these people. The very source and means by which sinners are saved, redeemed, bought, cleansed, is suddenly being perverted. And the danger is great, as we'll see in verse 17 and following. And and the attack, the offense that we need to take up in those verses is stunning. Battle language is what it is. But we need to understand how serious this is and why they need to be unmasked. They are cunning and deceitful. Remember, they crept in unnoticed. They came among them. They were, as we'll see next week, sitting at the feast, the very celebration of the Lord's Supper among them as spots, dark spots. So they're cunning. They're deceitful. They need to be seen for who they are. Well, without going too far into the next verses, meaning the latter verses of this book, I do want to ask, what do we do then as we consider this unmasking in these verses? Three things, very quickly as we close. First, walk, then rest, and then cultivate. Walk, rest, cultivate. First, walk in the way of wisdom. Walk in the true path of wisdom. And the Bible is very clear about what wisdom is, right? What is wisdom? Wisdom is and begins with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They had no fear of God in their hearts, nothing. It is not only the beginning, I would argue, and I think the Bible does, it is the end and the whole of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. All throughout our lives, we are to have our lives rooted in the fear of God, understanding who he is as he has revealed himself in his word, Understanding what he commands, understanding that he alone possesses all power, judgment, and authority, that his judgments are wrought in history for a reason, to show us the path of folly and of wisdom, and to call us to the place and path of wisdom, and understanding the graces that he gives to all of those who are humble before him. So friends, if you want to avoid people like this and falling into the traps which they set, which remember are cunning and deceitful, set your heart to wisdom, true wisdom. Not the belief that you receive something from God, a revelation that he's revealed only to you, which naturally sets you apart then from anyone else, because God, after all, spoke just to you. But walk in the worn, well-worn old path of wisdom and follow him in that path. And it will go well with you. Secondly, rest, truly rest in the knowledge that our great Savior, our great God is the one who defends us. That's the point of the illustration. Michael didn't. He could have just, with a sword, if he carries a sword, he could have just destroyed Satan. Didn't have to argue, but what did he do? The Lord rebuke you. Give no place to wrath in your life, no place for judgment of others, but rather simply leave it to God, Romans 12. Leave the place of wrath to God. God is not mocked. When men live as this way in their arrogance and animalistic ways, God is not mocked. We don't need to defend ourselves against them. God will judge and say, therefore, the Lord rebuke you. Even as Satan comes and attacks us and accuses us, that is his name, right? The accuser of the brethren. You go to Christ and you say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
I am in Jesus, and I am resting in the one who will always defend me. And there is safety only there. Thirdly, cultivate the graces that God has given to you. Grow in godliness, in holiness of life. You see, these were ungodly men. He's going to say that in 15 different ways in these verses. In fact, one section and one translation just keeps on using the word ungodly so that we get the point. These are ungodly men. So what's the remedy? Live a godly life. Pursue godliness as you've been called to do. Grow in godliness and your ability will, get, will increase to avoid such errors. You will know what ungodliness is when you know more deeply what godliness looks like in your own life. As we languish, as we fall away from godliness, holiness, conformity to Christ, we become more and more able to be deceived and drawn away, some even to everlasting perdition and destruction. You see, Jude's going to come to that point later when he tells us what we need to do. I'm giving you a warning in the front of this. Pursue godliness, cultivate the graces that God has given to you. Heed the clear warnings of God's word and do not walk in their ways. Let us pray. Father, it is good for us to see finally the false teachers of Jude's day so clearly unmasked. It's what we need to see. We need to see them for who they are. We thank you that Jude has done that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us in all of our lives to walk in wisdom, to know the protection that our Savior alone gives to us, and as well to cultivate by your grace all that you have given to us in Christ, to grow in godliness and conformity to him. Do that work in us, we pray. Protect us. And may we live this by your grace each day. And we ask this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.